Good to see you all again on a hot, still summer day for most of you, unless you have kids at Tarbut Batorah who decided to start school today for some reason. So summer is still going on, and our summer scholar is here. Again, he must have enjoyed talking to you all last night because he came back today. For those of you who don't know, this is Professor Shalom Sabar, Professor of Jewish Art and Folklore at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. He is our 10th annual CSP Summer Scholar. And um, last night's topic was Rembrandt, the Bible, and the Jews. Today's topic at your brown bag lunch event is Bride and Heroine, the Image of the Jewish Woman in Renaissance and Baroque Italy. This is your field of expertise, right? That's OK, yes, OK. We have the world expert in the field in this particular topic tonight, today. Remember, it's a four-part series. So this is part number two, which means how many more programs are left, Faith? <laughs> two. Even back from Indonesia, you can do your math. That's great. There are two more programs. One is tomorrow night, uh, which, will take, which is being hosted by Congregation B'nai Israel on the topic Jewish visual symbols and their development. And then the final program will be back here on Wednesday, Childbirth and Magic, Jewish Amulets and Popular Beliefs in the Pre-Modern Era. So um, I thank you all for coming out on this summer day to join us. I also urge you to join us September 9th when we have Rabbi Yosef Konevsky in town as our 10th annual pre-high holiday speaker. Rabbi Konevsky is the rabbi of Temple B'nai David Judea up in LA and has been named by um, Newsweek Magazine, which is one of the top 25 public rabbis in the United States of America. He will be in town. And then, of course, we have many programs, including our 12th annual one-month scholar. This year, Mark Michael Epstein will be in town. He's a, another professor of art and history and Jewish studies. He'll be with us for the month. With that, everyone, please turn your cell phone uh, either off or on vibrate mode and enjoy the next uh, hour or so of our Summer Scholar presentation. Thank you all for coming today. Thank you, Tadaraba Ari. Um, thank you for coming, really. I appreciate that. I know in the middle of the day, I thought I'll have five people here, so it's nice to have so many. Um, yesterday, I spoke about Holland and um, a Christian art looking at Dutch Jews. Uh, but today, we are going to cover a totally different topic, is how Jews in Italy of the Renaissance depicted themselves and what they thought of themselves. This will be the topic that I'll be covering and concentrating on one topic, and this is the woman in the Jewish art of Renaissance Italy. I'll speak more in the lecture about how it was to live as a Jew in Renaissance Italy, I'm speaking about the period of Leonardo da Vinci, Raphael, Michelangelo, and not many people know how Jews did in this period and what, how they appreciated themselves or their life and so on. And I like to discover always these topics through the visual images, and that's what we'll do today. But in order to appreciate for you how it was different in Renaissance Italy for the image of the Jews to be depicted there, I want first to go over some other places, and so, and we'll get in a few minutes to Italy. And I want to begin with Christian art of the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. Some of it you got already uh, last night. Uh, in, in Christian art, until Rembrandt, as we saw last night, uh, Jews were depicted in very negative way. I think that's almost given. Everybody knows that. But just to remind you, I mean, anti-Semitic art was not invented in the 20th century. It's really 
uh, going back to at least the early Middle Ages, and especially in Germany. Germany was the country where anti-Semitic images were produced more than any other country. What you see here is something from Alsace, from northern France or south Germany, if you want it. Uh, and it shows the people who are in, in hell, yes? I mean, who is going to be in hell? These are the flames of hell. And you see all the condemned, uh, according to Christian tradition, who are going to be. And one section shows, which I show you in large, the Jews. You see they are taken by the devils and thrown into the, this uh, f fire. And on this part, it says Judei in Latin. And how do we recognize that these are the Jews? Because they are totally nude, but they have the pointed head. The pointed head was forced by the, by, by, the, by the Germans in the Middle Ages, and that's how they're recognized. So they belong to hell. That's the place of the Jews, whether women or men, doesn't matter for, this, uh, for now. And how women were depicted in Christian art, Jewish women. We have one depiction that is very popular in medieval Germany and France and other countries. And this is the image of a woman that represents Judaism. And her name in Latin is Synagoga. Synagoga because she represents the synagogue or the Jewish tradition. And she's always confronted with another woman, allegorical figure also, these are allegories, that represents the church. The church is called Ecclesia. Yes, and the synagogue. And you see them in many cathedrals, like for example, this is the Strasbourg Cathedral that was built in the 13th century. If you go through the main gate, you'll see these two women. One represents Judaism and the other Christianity. How do you know which one is which? It's very easy because they have what we call attributes. The ecclesia has a staff that is long and direct. And she's crowned, she has a crown because she's victorious. The church won. She's holding a cup of wine, which is the symbol of victory and of the blood of Jesus. And while the synagogue, she has her staff broken in several places. Her eyes, she doesn't have a crown and her eyes are blindfolded, yes. Why? You see there is like a sort of a, uh, something on her eyes so that to show that she's blind to the coming of the Messiah. Judaism does not recognize the arrival of the Messiah. So the staff is broken, and she holds the Ten Commandments upside down. I'll speak tomorrow more about the Ten Commandments, but here you can see that's the symbol of the synagogue. She's humiliated. She's reclining down while Ecclesia is standing tall and direct. So that's how the Jew Jewish woman would be depicted in Christian art. And sometimes you see even more horrific images, like, for example, this one. This is the synagogue. And this is the Ecclesia. The Ecclesia is stepping over Judaism. You can say she's victorious over her, yes, because Judaism has lost. I mean, that's the religion that is no longer practiced. And so synagogue is blindfolded, and she's trying to protest because the Jews in the Middle Ages were known that they are rebellious. They don't, uh, they're not willing to accept their Christian tradition. So this woman, the Ecclesia, is stepping over her and you know, putting her stuff inside there, but still synagogue is trying to protest. Sometimes we see in, in uh, like this kind of uh, image that we have in one of the churches in Germany, the ecclesia is holding a head of a goat. Why the goat? G-O-A-T, yes? Because that's something from the temple sacrifice to show that the temple sacrifice has ended, and that's another symbol of the synagogue that she's like, Something of the past, of the temple times, her staff is broken. Again, I won't show you what the staff is broken, and the crown is falling because she lost her kingdom, you can say. Judaism, this Jewish woman. 
And uh, I want to end with maybe this story with two more images of the synagogue. Here, the synagogue is shown often in, the, in depictions of the crucifixion. This is the crucifixion. We see Jesus on the cross. And there are two sides. On the two sides of the cross, there are two women. One is the ecclesia. She's getting, you see, the blood that will be the wine of the mass that will be used. And she's always standing to the right of Jesus because she's, the right side is the good side. On the left of Jesus is the synagogue. The synagogue is pushed away from the scene because she's finished her duty. And she's pushed away by whom? By the devil. See, the devil is riding above her and is pushing this woman, this Jewish woman, outside of the scene. At this moment of the crucifixion, she finished her role in the world, you can say. Judaism is lost, now begins Christianity. Sometimes in these scenes of the crucifixion, like we see a partial picture here in one of the, one of the churches in Germany, it's a fresco, it's a wall painting, and so we see the synagogue on the left, this is the crucified Jesus, I'm showing you only detail, and she's holding the head of the goat, and look, you see what's happening. From the cross comes out a hand, and it's holding a sword. The sword goes into the head of the synagogue. She's all, and then into her breast, and she's all bleeding. She's riding on a donkey, the donkey of the Messiah. But this donkey of the Messiah, of the Jewish Messiah, will never arrive because he's already slaughtered and all his body is bleeding. And you see blood is coming from all his body because this donkey of the Messiah will never bring the Messiah, according to Christian tradition. And who is the woman who is associated with synagogue? Another woman, Eve. Eve is here. She's next to the synagogue. You see Eve with the serpent. Why Eve? Because Eve is the symbol of evil in Christianity. Eve is the reason why Humanity suffers until the arrival of Jesus. Eve is evil, and the, I'm emphasizing that because the letters are the same and the sound is the same, and this is what is called in Christianity the original sin. I mean, the fact that everybody suffers until today is because of this woman, Eve, that is the symbol of Judaism. She began, the, you can say, the, the, the bad things that happened to humanity because this woman was seduced by the snake. By the way, the snake or the serpent has a, an apple. Why the apple was selected? The apple is not mentioned in the Bible. In the Bible, the book of Genesis, when you read the story of the story of Adam and Eve, there's no name of the fruit. Why the apple was depicted? Why it was selected? Because the word for apple in Latin, malum, is like the word for evil, for mal. Mal is the word, that's the, the, the selected, it's not mentioned in the Torah, it's not mentioned in the Midrash. In the Midrash, the fruit that Eve was given was maybe an etrog, maybe some say a fig. There are different opinions, but definitely not an apple. Okay, so this is the image of the woman, the Jewish woman in Christian art in the Middle Ages. Let's go now to Jewish art of the Middle Ages and the Renaissance outside Italy, before we get to Italy, and I'll show you two communities, Ashkenazim and Sfaradim, Germany and Spain. We begin with Germany. German Jews of the Middle Ages, community, very heroic community, but suffered a lot. Um, and, but in their approach to the arts, there is something that's very interesting. They did not dare for many centuries to show full human figure because maybe of the second commandments that forbid about the depiction of the human figure. And so we see examples, for example, the opening of the book of Genesis from a Hebrew Bible from Germany. You see Adam and Eve at the opening. Yes, this is Adam, this is Eve. And both are standing frontal, but the head is twisted so that we don't see their faces. So you see them with the fig leaves, yes, Adam and Eve. And she, you can see 
uh, even on the other side, but you cannot see their faces because it's not allowed to show full human figure, whether men or female. In some of the Bibles, like this one here on the left, also a German Bible, the artist did depict the face of the woman, but then the people who used this book could not face it, and they took a knife and removed their eyes and the, the nose and so on. So you see there is a blank here because just it was moved by a knife, yes? I mean, so you have the rest of the figure is there, but we don't see the face of this woman. And sometimes, was very popular also in Ashkenaz, in medieval Germany, was to make to human figures, give them animal heads. For example, like this, the Berze Agada, that's it, the earliest, by the way, illustrated Agada that survived. It's from medieval Germany. It's from 1300, from south of Germany. So we see the baking of the matzot, the preparation of the matzot for Pesach. And we see the master of the house. He's standing here and showing the women. How do we know who is the woman? Because she has uh, uh, yes, like uh, this uh, kerchief, yes, on her head. This is one woman, here's another woman. This is a child, this is a boy. This is the father, he has the wooden hood, the pointed head. So that's the man, two women and one child. And he's showing them how to perforate the matzah. You see, he's holding this comb of iron and the child is following him and so we see the holes and so on. But anyway, in this way we see how human figures were depicted, never as beautiful figures will never show beautiful women, for example, or something like that. Even when we get to later period in German Jewish art, sometimes, like in this episode of the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, the men have already human face by this period, but all the women, I'll show you the detail, have animal faces, because they could not show full female figures for the spectator that is usually a man. It's like if you did today, you go to Measharim, it's more or less the same. Women are not, let's say, something that is encouraged to be around you. Yes, and sometimes even we see, I want to show you one more example from Ashkenaz, is the earliest wedding scene that survived, that we have in our hands. This comes from the Wormsmachzor, it's in the National Library today in Jerusalem, and it has a wedding episode. This is Mesadera Kiddushin, this is the rabbi, he's holding the cup of wine, here's an uh, animal face, and here's the Judenhut, and here we see the bride and the bridegroom. This with the blonde hair, the long blonde hair is the bridegroom, because he has the Judenhut. The face of the woman you cannot see. She's totally covered. You don't see her features, yes? I mean, she's covered, maybe she's veiled, I don't know, it could be, but anyway, the artist is very insistent about that, not to show us female face in his manuscript. Okay, we go now to Sepharad, to medieval Spain. Medieval Spain, yes? And the, the Jews of medieval Spain were very, let's say, uh, modern. They were not like the Ashkenazim in that period. They, tried to be more part of the society of their time and take advantage of the attainments of the society and so on. So in Sepharad, you don't have any, any negative figure of this type, but still we see the women in a, let's say, regular position. For example, this, this Haggadah, I'll show you a detail from a Haggadah that's called the Golden Haggadah. It was done in Barcelona in the middle of the 14th century. And we see typical, how, let's say, a, a scene of daily life and how the women will be Featured here, this is the master of the house. Okay, he sits here, in his this uh, baldacchino sort of. Yes, this uh, very beautiful place that he sits. And what does he do? He only gives orders. Yes, typical Sephardi man, you can say. 
And so the woman and the children are walking and preparing for Pesach while he's giving the orders. And the inscription says, So he orders them to prepare the matzot and the charoset. Here they prepare the charoset. The children are doing it, and the woman with the baby, and she's still walking. And he's sitting there and giving her orders. Okay, you can say what else is new, but uh, that's... Uh, anyway, and another scene from, this, uh, from the Golden Agada. We see now the night before the seder, the night before the Lela seder, the preparations for the, for, the, for, the, for the cleaning of the house, and we see the father and the son, yes, and the mother and her daughter. Four figures here, a family. So each one is doing what he's supposed to do, he or she are supposed to do. The father is looking for the crumbs of bread. He's holding a candle and he's holding a stick, and the son is following him, to collect all the crumbs of bread because that's a mitzvah. That's what the son should do, learning from his father to, 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 do the, to perform the mitzvot. The mother and their daughter are sweeping the house. One is the floor, one is the ceiling. Yes, so each one has its duty in the house. Each one knows where his place is and so on. Okay? Uh, and even in some of the Sephardi Agadot, which is very, people, people always like to, show, to enjoy to see it because it's a joke of the Middle Ages, for the scene of Maror, yes, the scene of Maror, they show in Sfarad the Maror was an artichok. That's what they used for Maror, okay? So you see two men are holding the big Maror, and then the bottom of the episode is at the same time that they, they say Maror Zeh, this Maror, this bitter herb that we eat in Passover, the husband points at his wife, this bitter herb. So she is the, my bitter herb. Yes, I mean, that's a joke maybe, but it was still common in the Middle Ages. And actually, even when we advanced to the 16th century, and so now the Haggadah from Prague, the first Haggadah printed in Prague, for Marorze, you see, Marorze, it says here, Yesh Minhag Ba'olam, for those of you who read Hebrew, already in Hebrew, Yesh Minhag Ba'olam, Shaish Morei Ala Isha, Mishum Shenemar, Isha Ra'a Mar Mimavet. There is a custom in the world, I mean, among the Jews, of course, uh, that the husband in this moment points at his wife and says, Marorze, because a woman is worse than uh, deaf, yes? It's a verse. I'm sorry, I'm, I apologize for this. Uh, I not, I'm not responsible for Jewish history of the past. I mean, that's how they showed the... Of course, the, the artists were men. Of course, you understand that. The artists were men, yes? That's how they took revenge of the women, I mean... <laughs> Okay, so with this introduction, we move. Yes, yes. Is it possible that that is somehow a part of the superstition so that death will not get the wife? I never thought of that, but I, I don't know. I really don't know. It's something to investigate. I didn't, yeah, I didn't think of that. But it appears in so many Agadot, and only in the Pagagada you have this explanation. The others, it just shows the husband. Points at his wife. Only one Agadah of the about 20 that have this episode, the wife is pointing back at him. <laughs> Only in one. <laughs> anyway, okay, so we move now to Italy and to Renaissance Italy. We, I showed this introduction so that we understand how Italy is different, really, in my opinion, and not everybody would agree to that, but I'll speak about that later, maybe the differences in opinions of scholars. And so I'm showing you the first ghetto in the world. Actually, the place where the word ghetto was created, the word ghetto was created in Venice. It's actually in Venetian dialect, this word that now is used everywhere in the US and every place else to mean even something else. But the first ghetto is this ghetto in, the, in Venice that was created in the early 16th century. 
and the uh, and Jewish community that lived in this town is a very interesting one. We're going to go into the ghetto of Venice and some other uh, Italian communities to get the sense of life. But in what we should remember at this moment, that the ghettos in Italy, in Renaissance Italy, were always in the center of the town, in the height of the activity. For example, for those who visited Florence, today, where the synagogue is of Florence is not where the ghetto was in the Renaissance. The ghetto was where the center of the city is, where now all the shopping malls and so on are. And this was destroyed in the 19th century. But the ghettos in Italy were always located near the palace of the Doges in Venice or a place that is of the center of the city in other towns. Because of the protection. The Jews need protection uh, if they want it. I mean, they came to live, let's say, in some of these Italian towns by invitation. The duke or the doge or the whatever you, uh, the princes of Italy would invite Jewish families, most, in most cases, to be moneylenders. To be moneylenders because in Italy, in Renaissance Italy, it was not allowed to lend money by Christians to other Christians. Because supposedly they followed the Torah in that, that you should not take interest from your brother. So they invited the Jews to do that, especially in Venice because Veni Venice was a commercial center and they needed the Jews, so they would invite them, and they, in the condotta, in the, in the charter that they would give them, they promised them protection. So the protection was done by, in this way that they are next to the, to, the, to the ruler, yes? To the ruling class. Okay, so one of the manuscripts that I'm going to show you many images from it that was produced around this time is this one. It's called the Rothschild Miscellany. It's a very big book. It's today in the Israel Museum. It was donated by the Rothschild family to the State of Israel uh, some years after it was created, in the 50s. And since then, it's, it was in Bezalel, and now today in the Israel Museum. And it's one of the most glorious, you can say, Hebrew manuscripts that was ever created. Yes, because you see the size of this book. It has about 1,000 pages. It has 70 different uh, books in it. Yes, I mean, biblical books, uh, Passover Agadah, and Sidur, and also books of philosophy of Maimonides, and literary books. It's like an encyclopedia. Someone who owned this book, and we don't know his name, he had the whole library. This is a library of the past, you can say, or the iPad of, the, of today, I don't know. I mean, anyway, so, in, and every page in this manuscript is illuminated, every page. And it's done on vellum. Vellum is the skin, the parchment, of a young animal, less than one year old, and sometimes embroy, because that was considered the best parchment. It's like thin and almost translucent. I mean, so it's the best. I don't know how many animals they had to kill to produce this manuscript. It's amazing the money that was spent on producing something so luxurious. Page after page, every page, it, the, the letters are designed in very interesting way. I mean, the person who copied the manuscript uh, wrote the text. Every page he did a different typography, and always we find some images. For example, here is again for Pesach. This is the Agadah in this manuscript, and you see the preparation of the matzot as we saw before. Yes, okay. And it has a lot about daily life, about, let's say, the synagogue. You see the Torah is taken from the ark, and we see someone is kissing the mezuzah when he goes out of home, and we see Sheva Brachot here, and here we see something mourning on the dead. And many interesting customs are revealed. For example, look at one thing that is very interesting here. The mezuzah is not diagonal. It's vertical, yes? And because in the Renaissance, before the composition of the Shulchan Aruch, there were different opinions how the mezuzah should be. 
some said vertical, like we see in Italy. In other countries, in Ashkenaz, it was horizontal. And then the compromise in Shulchan Aruch was diagonal. Yeah, it's not, it's not a joke, that's serious matter. So, but here we see that the artist is depicting really his daily reality, what he knew. And some of the images in this manuscript, before we go to the images on women, really show us how good it was for the Jews to live in Renaissance Italy, how happy they were. Although they don't show that in scenes of daily life, they show it for biblical episodes, but still that's the case. What we see are these two pages, one here and one here, are illustrations to the book of Job, the book of Eov, Job, which is not the happiest book of the Bible, you can say, yes? While in Ashkenaz, in Sfarad, when they illustrate the book of Job, they will show Job suffering while his friends come to, co to comfort him and so on. The Italian Jewish artist doesn't show that. What he shows is if you read at the top of the page here, Le Eov Le Mishneh, everything, Job got back at the end of his life. God forgave him, and the last three verses of the book tell about Job that is regaining all his profits and everything that was he had in the past. So we see a beautiful episode of, let's say, a pastoral scene that shows the beauty of the landscape and so on, and the, the sheep and the mountain and the, the river there and so on. Very pastoral episode, and that's probably where the, this person lived. And the very last verse, Job got back three daughters and seven sons. So we see Job here. The figure that you think is very tragic, but look how happy he is here, and with his three daughters and seven sons, sitting in a Renaissance palazzo. Yes, this typical Renaissance palazzo that we see here. So I think, in my opinion, this is the pattern of the manuscript, and he wants to show how happy he is to be in such beautiful landscape in Italy of his time and so on. I want to show you one more thing before we go to the images of women and see how this manuscript improves on what was before. In, it was common in Jewish tradition in the Middle Ages to, for the opening of the Book of Psalms, the beginning of the Book of Psalms, you see the word Ashrei is written in large letters, and to show King David, the author of the Book of Psalms, sitting here and playing the harp. How do you know this in Ashkenazi manuscript? Because look at the face. No face, yes? Like I said, I told you before. King David, he has the crown, but instead of a face, there is a blank, yes? Okay, so this is Ashkenaz. Okay, let's go to Spain. This is a Bible from Spain. We see King David here, he's, he has a face, it's, he's beautiful, but he's very stiff, and um, actually the image was copied from a playing card. And this is the image of the king in a playing card. Oh, this is the King David, in, the, in, in, in Sfarad. No invention, no new ideas. Now let's go to the Rothschild miscellany and see how it was done in the Veneto, in Venice. Here is the book. So we see King David seated here. In the landscape, while he's playing his harp, all the animals come around him and you see beautiful pastoral landscape behind him. We see a full picture. It's not just like we saw here, just David and the background is... Uh, is uh, abstract or not significant to the image, yes? Or here, no background at all. Here he sits in a landscape. It's like I open the window and I see King David playing there outside. This is the idea of the Renaissance. Every painting is a full image of what you see. Yes, you have the sky, you have the earth, you have the, everything that grows. You, you draw a full picture of what you see. It's like you take a picture in camera, yes? 
So that was the idea of the Renaissance. And of course, there is a perspective and so on. So it, although it's a small miniature, it's not a fresco in a church or in a synagogue for this case. Yes, it's a small miniature, but still all the ideas of the Renaissance are incorporated in the Jewish art of the time of Italy. Or for example, look how the ideas of the Renaissance are now implanted in, in Jewish ideas. Nishmat Kolchai, if you know this prayer that we say, recite, Nishmat Kolchai, the every soul or every creature praises the Lord. How the artist of the Renaissance shows it? He shows all the creatures that he knows, a rabbit, and you see every animal is different, a monkey, a deer, and so on, and all the, everything that grows, uh, I mean, the, the grass and the, the flowers, all, let's say, the creatures of the world are singing the praise of the world. How this is a Renaissance idea? Because the Renaissance, Italian Renaissance, one of the, let's say, discoveries of the Italian Renaissance is not only the world of God that is in heaven, but also what we have on earth. This is the age of discovery. People like Leonardo da Vinci are uh, doing operations to dead people. I mean, they want to see how our body functions or how the water flows and how mountains are positioned and so on. So this is the idea of discovery of geography, of the world, of the physical world. And you show that with the Shmat Kolchai. And you show a Jewish, Italian Jew that prays, and he has the tefillin on, the talit on, and he recites the prayer. But you show all the creatures of the world as they sing and praise the God. So it's like, again, what I want to emphasize, let's say they're taking the ideas from the Renaissance, but making them very Jewish. Or, oh, for example, another page in this manuscript, this is the book of Maimonides in the Mishneh Torah. Okay, Mishneh Torah. One book of the Mishneh Torah of Maimonides, this very important, famous book, is the book of Mada. Mada, Maimonides meant from knowledge, everything that we know about God, the knowledge of God. But in the Renaissance, they understood Mada as we understand it in modern Hebrew, science, science. So although the book speaks about the knowledge of God, here we see scientists, typical Renaissance scientists. What they do? They go outside, they look at the sky, and they measure the, how they move and so on, the, the stars. And they write down, I mean, they look in their, uh, uh, all these um, 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 uh, uh, scientific instruments that they have, like the astrolabe that they have here, or a compass, and they write down the results. This is the new science. It's not just you to read in books what the Greeks said, but you have to do experiments and you will write them down like every scientist does today. This is the beginning of science. So the word Madao of Maimonides totally changes its original meaning here. Yes, the artist knows what this word means, but he now gives it a contemporary meaning. Okay, so now we get to the issue of the women. And I want to begin with this woman. Uh, this Donna Grazia, uh, not the famous one, that's her niece. But here we see the first time in Jewish history in northern Italy, in the city of Ferrara, where this medal was struck, showing for the first time a Jewish woman that is the hero of the medal. And she looks so prominent, so self-assured, dressed in a beautiful way. Her name is written in Hebrew, Grazia Nasi. Yes, you see. And in Latin as well. And she was, of course, very wealthy. She was of Sephardi origin. But it's the first time that we have such a large medal, such a, let's say, something so representative used by men and women on the depiction, the centerpiece is a woman. And she's not with animal fairs. She's not hidden. She's not serving her husband. Nothing. It's he. It's she. 
Donna Grazia Nassif, for whatever she did. Yes, she was really very well known at the time. Many men wanted to marry her because of her wealth and so on. But anyway, so we see for the first time an image of a woman that is, let's say, so prominent. Especially we see the images of the women in wedding episodes. At the wedding episodes, I don't know if I should go to the, well, I showed you from the Worms Machzor, but for a second, maybe quickly, I'll show that. Yes, that their face is not shown. We don't see the woman. The man is standing, not looking at her, and so on. This is in Ashkenaz. And now when we come to Italy, and there are many episodes of the bride, the bride is equal to the man. I mean, they are standing, both of them frontal, facing the spectator, fully dre dressed in beautiful costumes. And look, even, I don't know if you showed this in Mea Shearim today, they would believe me this is a Jewish man. Because look at the way he's dressed. Like I'm out directly from a picture of Botticelli. Yes, I mean, actually, the Italian rabbis of the time complained that this, uh, what's the word, tights. The tights that he's wearing is too tight, and the, the skirt is too short, and it shows, uh, it's, you know, makes prominent whatever. It does not, uh, does not have to be prominent. And so that you believe me, this episode comes from a sidur. A sidur, you know, a very orthodox sidur, not a reform sidur. Yes, so uh, this, is, this miniature is from a sidur that was drawn in uh, northern Italy. And this picture that I showed you in the previous slide. And here we see Seder Chatanim, the order of the wedding. And there are instructions what should be done, what should be said.